Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. In order for the party of Lincoln and Eisenhower and Reagan and Grant to endure, to be redeemed, to be saved, the party of Trump must be politically annihilated and destroyed. That's Steve Schmidt. He's a longtime Republican strategist and advisor, or he was, until he renounced his membership in the party this June. I speak with him about the party of Trump, the silence of congressional Republicans, and the future of the moderate middle, plus his thoughts on his friend and mentor, John McCain. That's coming up. Stay tuned. It's so easy to get overwhelmed by the twists and turns of politics, especially these days. Maybe that's why you listen to me. And it's easy to get overwhelmed managing your money. That's why people use Betterment. Betterment is the largest online financial advisor. Its mission is to help you make the most of your money. With a mix of simple tools and personalized advice, Betterment helps people build wealth, plan for retirement, and hit their financial goals. You pay one low transparent management fee, no matter who you are, or how much money you invest. No hidden costs, ever. And you get access to unlimited personalized advice from licensed experts. If you get off track, Betterment's tools and guidance will get you straightened out. Look, I know how fast life can change. One day you're a U.S. attorney. The next day you're a podcast host. So prepare for the unexpected. A solid financial plan and some sound advice can make a world of difference. Investing involves risk. Betterment can be your guide. And now my listeners can get up to one year managed free. For more information, visit Betterment.com slash Preet. That's Betterment.com slash Preet. Okay, let's get to your questions. So the first question comes in an email from Lee, who writes, Hi Preet, I'm a fan in Baltimore and I want to appeal to your rich trial experience. Won't the way Judge Ellis is constantly correcting and admonishing the prosecutors in the Manafort case undermine their credibility with the jury? Are there no limits on how aggressive and disruptive the judge is allowed to be? Thanks, Lee. So we've gotten a lot of questions like this. And if you've been following the trial, uh, either in the paper or on television, you've been hearing about some of the fireworks between, in particular, Judge Ellis in the Eastern District of Virginia and some of the prosecutors on the case, a little bit with the defense lawyers, but more with the prosecutors. Now, I've never appeared in front of Judge Ellis, but I've appeared in front of judges like Judge Ellis. And, you know, what people need to remember about courtrooms is that judges, just like prosecutors and defendants and defense lawyers, are just human beings. Some of them are nice and sweet and lovely. Some of them are mean and nasty. Uh, Sometimes they get up on the right side of the bed. Sometimes they get up on the wrong side of the bed. Sometimes they are bored. By reputation, Judge Ellis is, for want of a better word, sort of an ordinary person on the bench. My personal preference, and I think the preference of most lawyers, is that a judge a little bit stay in the background unless he really needs to command control in the courtroom and and cut off people who are going too far or are, you know, violating the ethics rules in the courtroom. Um, That said, you know, prosecutors are tough people too. And the people on the Mueller team, I think, are taking it right back to the judge. Now, you have to be careful about how you do that and what you do in front of the jury. There was one exchange that I heard about between Judge Ellis and one of the prosecutors on the special counsel's team, Greg Andres, who I know personally, where the judge suggested that Greg Andres was crying to which Mr. Andres says, I am not crying. And the judge disputed that. I, I know Greg a long time. He's a tough prosecutor. He brought down the Messino crime family, formerly known as the Bonanno crime family, had death threats against him. I don't think he cries in court. So, you know, it sounds like it's maybe more contentious than your average trial, but that sounds like it's because Judge Ellis is by nature more contentious than your average trial judge. At the end of the day, it doesn't always make a difference if the prosecutors are keeping their heads down, 
sticking to the facts, making their arguments, respectfully standing up to the judge, the facts and the law tend to win out at trial. And as to your question, are there no limits on how aggressive and disruptive a judge is allowed to be? The judge really has tremendous leeway on how he or she controls the courtroom. And so, you know, from time to time, there was a case once we thought a judge was being incredibly unfair to us. You could move, depending on what stage you're at, for removal of the judge. But boy, if you do that and you fail, then you're in a much worse spot. This next question comes in a tweet from GWO. It asks, how does Gates stack up as a witness, in your opinion, in the Manafort trial? Hashtag AskPreet. So again, I have not been there. I've been following it relatively closely. And as I said before, in anticipation of the trial, that Gates was going to be, you know, both a good witness and a problematic witness. He's a good witness in the sense that he was there, that he could provide context to various transactions that are at the heart of the indictment and the case, that he could explain the kinds of things that he was ordered to do by Paul Manafort, and he would corroborate what the records show, and the records would corroborate what he testifies to. He's a bad witness and a problematic witness, although it seems like he's holding up relatively fine on cross-examination because he's also a proven liar. Uh, you know, it's not just an allegation of lies. He has pled guilty to lying to the FBI in the context of trying to get his own plea deal. And even worse than that, as has come out at the trial, it turns out that he was a thief, not only with respect to the you know, IRS, but also with respect to the person against whom he's testifying. He has admitted to stealing from embezzling money from Paul Manafort himself. So, you know, all of that paints him in a fairly poor light. And depending on what people thought of his credibility at trial, it could affect people's belief in him. Now, the standard operating line for prosecutors is, even if you find a witness unlikable, that's not what matters. It doesn't matter whether you like the witness, it matters whether you believe the witness. And so for a guy like Gates, if you were just bringing him on the stand, I think, to talk about meetings that were not recorded and for which there was no corroborating evidence and your whole case rested on him, I think that would be a big problem. But here, given the nature of the charges and the lying about paying taxes and not paying taxes and the lying about uh, whether or not there was an interest in foreign bank accounts, that's pretty readily established by documents. And that Gates fills in some gaps. So it is not as terrible for them that he has this checkered past. But only... The jury will know, and the jury will decide. Hi, Preet. This is Suzanne from Fairfax, California. And I was wondering if you could explain to me how the Republicans in Congress cannot release all the judicial nominee Brett Kavanaugh's writings. Doesn't everyone on the Judiciary Committee have the right to read everything in order to make an informed decision? Thanks for your question, Suzanne. So this is a perennial debate issue fight in the Congress when you have a nominee to the Supreme Court who has some record of writings. And the Democrats will argue, and I think they have a legitimate argument, and I think they have the better argument, that given how important the seat is, and given the extensive experience Brett Kavanaugh had in the White House, and in you know politics and politically charged issues, they should see what his opinions were and what his writings were during that time period. In the same way, a lot of that material was provided when Elena Kagan was the nominee as Barack Obama's pick for the Supreme Court. And what you'll see in every instance is people on one side or another side drawing distinctions between, well, the last time we needed documents because there was a lot of uncertainty about the person's views, and this time we don't need to have the documents. So here, you would think that the Democrats have the better argument, saying, you know, White House documents and other sorts of materials like this have been provided based on demands from the Republicans in the past, and so what's good for the goose is good for the gander, and it should happen again this way. But you would be wrong. Because in this case, what Senator Grassley and others have said is, well, with Kavanaugh, the Democrats don't need to see all those documents because Brett Kavanaugh has a long record as a sitting federal circuit court judge. For 12 years, you've been able to see his opinions. And so he's not as much of a blank slate or a black box as some other nominees like Elena Kagan, who had never been a judge. I mean, I suppose that's a point. I don't think it's a very persuasive point, but that's why you have these kinds of arguments. Look, and, and further to the Democratic argument since we're talking about the merits of arguments, uh, Brett Kavanaugh has himself said that his legal thinking was influenced by his time in those positions that generated documents that now people don't want others to see. So it's a give and take, and it's basically a political fight. A nominee will answer as much as he or she has to in order to get confirmed. And remember, 
Arlen Specter had this line, sure, a nominee has a right not to answer the question, and I, as a senator, have the right not to vote for you. We'll see what happens. I think there's a powerful argument that you want to have Kavanaugh's documents from his time in the White House, but Republicans control the Senate, so we'll see what happens. Hi, Preet. My name is Chase from San Francisco. Uh, I recently saw a special by John Oliver on prosecutors and their power within the systems, talking about how only 5% of cases actually go to trial and that the system would actually collapse if every case went to trial. And an underlying theme of the segment was the power of the prosecutors within the court system and a debate as to whether this power is maybe a little bit too robust. I'd love for you to comment on both of those topics. Thank you. Hi, Chase. Thanks for your question. So a lot of people have asked about the John Oliver segment. I should say at the outset that I watch John Oliver every week. I love John Oliver. I think he's incredibly funny. You know, one can hope that maybe he will be a podcast guest in the future. It's a long segment that raises a lot of important issues and makes a lot of good points. The first of which, as you reference in your voicemail, is that prosecutors have tremendous power. No argument there. We, we made that clear to folks that we hired and we trained that they have an incredible amount of power to affect people's lives and livelihoods. And that's why they had to be incredibly careful in how they exercised their discretion. That's why we spent so much time, more time than I think most people do in any other job setting, trying to find the right people who are not just book smart and not just ambitious, but have a good heart, not just a good mind and have good character. So, you know, I did not serve in a lot of offices. I only served in one in the Southern District of New York. And so this idea of culture that John Oliver talks about, I think is incredibly important. And one of the things he says in the segment about prosecutorial power is that we tend not to think about that power very much. Uh, well, I can assure you that we thought about that power all the time. I agree with the other point John Oliver made as well, which is, as he put it on the show, he said, many try to do their jobs honorably, but that power can be misused. Yes, I completely agree with that. You know, there are thousands and thousands of prosecutors in the country. I do think that generally in law enforcement, people try to do their jobs honorably, but some don't. And there were various examples that John Oliver gave in the show that I found appalling as well, you know, a practice in one local prosecutor's office of giving bonuses to people based on their conviction rate, I think is terrible. I mean, we, we tried to make it a point, I tried to make it a point, you know, not to tally or have charts of what people's conviction rates were. I think our conviction rate was very high, keeping with the standard around the country and particularly in federal court. We didn't have quotas for people to charge cases. Sometimes the right result was to walk away from a case. Sometimes the right result was to bring a case. John Oliver is also correct that it is not great that 95% of cases, according to his segment, are resolved through a plea of guilty. Trials are good. Trials are open. Trials are more likely to lead to fairness. And it's a flaw of the system that I think a lot of prosecutors don't necessarily like. I mean, prosecutors like to go to trial. You may remember that in the Q&A session in the fourth segment of our criminal justice series a couple of months ago, Lisa Monaco and Ann Milgram and I talked about this at some length that it is an inadequate system. I don't disagree with that. I don't think the solution is that every single human being who gets charged with a crime where there's overwhelming evidence should go to trial. Um, but I think there should be more trials. I don't think, in my experience, there have been cases where maybe this is a luxury of federal court where people pled guilty when they were not in fact guilty. Does it always work that way? I'm sure John Oliver is correct um, that there are aberrations and it doesn't. And that's a problem and that should end. And people should do something about that. Culture in an office where there are a lot of people who have a lot of power, it's incredibly important. And so that's why we would say in our office that you run just as fast to exonerate the innocent as you do to convict the guilty. And, and which, is why, which is why some of the proudest moments I had in the Southern District were when people in SDNY uh, went out of their way, not just to prosecute people who were guilty and should be held accountable, but also engaged in a sizable number of exonerations of people who had been wrongly convicted by other offices. There was one case in particular that I think I've mentioned before where five people who had served 17 years in prison who were incorrectly charged by the Bronx DA's office were exonerated by the work done by uh, John O'Malley and Margaret Garnett in my office, an investigator and a prosecutor who had reason to believe that they were in jail for crimes they did not commit, reinvestigated the case, read the underlying trial record, and on the basis of an affidavit from someone in my office, a fellow prosecutor's office, got those folks out of prison. And there are other examples of that in my office as well. So, you know, laws are important, rules are important, 
but the character of the individuals uh, who make up the culture of a place is absolutely important also. And so I agree with John Oliver when he says that. And then finally, when he says, look, if you've got a local DA who's elected, and most DAs in the country are elected, I I had a federal position, so I was appointed. If you don't like the priorities and policies and sense of fairness you get from the DA in your town or community or county, then you vote that person out. And in fact, that just happened on Tuesday in an election for district attorney of St. Louis County in Missouri, where the voters turned out Robert McCullough, who was the DA during the time of all the violence that happened in Ferguson in favor of another gentleman named Wesley Bell. So there is a part for judges to play. There's a part for prosecutors to play in policing themselves. And there's also a part to play for citizens in the community to turn out DAs that they don't think are doing the job properly. My guest this week is Steve Schmidt. For decades, he worked at the highest levels of Republican campaigns, advising George W. Bush, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and John McCain. In June, he renounced his membership in the party, calling the GOP, quote, a danger to our democracy and values, close quote. By the way, Steve also just launched a podcast. It's called Words Matter, and the first episode is out now. Check it out. I talked to him about Trump's appeal, the ideologists driving his agenda, and what principled conservatives can do, plus his reflections on Senator McCain's legacy. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Stay tuned to Supported by ZipRecruiter. Here's one thing I keep thinking as I watch the turmoil in Washington. It's important to surround yourself with good people. That's where ZipRecruiter can help. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash Preet. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter find a quality candidate through the site in just one day. With results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Preet. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash P-R-E-E-T. ZipRecruiter.com slash Preet. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Sure, it would be great if you could make dinner every night, but with news breaking 24-7 and presidential tweet storms coming at all hours, that doesn't always happen. So when you've lost hours reading indictments or following the news, and there's no time to cook, it's tempting to order takeout. Now, instead of spending 20 minutes waiting for delivery, 20 minutes, who waits only 20 minutes? You ever ordered in the suburbs? Now, instead of spending 20 minutes waiting for delivery, you can use that time to prepare your own fresh, healthy meal. Thanks to the new quick and easy meal from Sunbasket. Sunbasket's meal kits make it easy and convenient to cook healthy, delicious meals at home, no matter how much experience you have in the kitchen. You get pre-measured, easy-to-prep ingredients and organic produce delivered to your door. In about 20 minutes, you can knock out dishes like super-fast Thai turkey lettuce cups, yum, or simple sausage tacos with bell pepper, chili salsa, and queso fresco. Sunbasket works with the best farms and suppliers to make sure your produce is fresh and organic and your meats and seafood are responsibly sourced. Mix and match from any of their 18 weekly recipes, including paleo, gluten-free, and vegan options. Skip or cancel anytime. I know it's really easy to get distracted by the world and forget to eat properly, but Sunbasket makes a homemade dinner fast and simple. Go to sunbasket.com slash preet today to learn more and get $35 off your first order. That's sunbasket.com slash preet for $35 off Sunbasket. Sunbasket.com slash preet. Steve Schmidt, thank you for being on the show. It's great to have you. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. So you have been in politics a long time, and I thought we'd start by talking about a you know, fairly dramatic decision you made 
in recent weeks and, and read for the listeners and for you the beginning of a statement you made when you chose to leave the Republican Party. And you said this, quote, 29 years and nine months ago, I registered to vote and became a member of the Republican Party, which was founded in 1854 to oppose slavery and stand for the dignity of human life. Today, I renounce my membership in the Republican Party. It is fully the party of Trump. And then you went on to say about the party, it is corrupt, indecent, and immoral. With the exception of a few governors like Baker, Hogan, and Kasich, it is filled with feckless cowards who disgrace and dishonor the legacies of the party's greatest leaders. The child separation policy is connected to the worst abuses of humanity in our history. And then you go on, uh, also not mincing words, what made you make that decision and use such strong language? Well, because I believe it. And I think that the Republican Party has become a threat to liberal democracy in the United States, uh, to our constitutional republic. And I think that's tragic for the country because of the nature of our politics and the durability you know, until now of the two-party system. I've always had a point of view that these two political parties are two of the most important institutions, not just in the history of the country, but in the history of the world for the advancement of human freedom and dignity. And each political party has put forward in times of existential crisis in the, in the nation's history, it has put forward the leaders who have saved the country. In the 19th century, the great Republican president, the greatest leader of the 19th century, in my view, Abraham Lincoln, saves the Union. FDR, the greatest president of the 20th century, saves free market American capitalism and leads the allies in a war against the darkness of Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan. And it saves the world and reorders the world. The degeneracy of the conservative movement of the Republican Party into a scam and a racket and a business that venerates now in a cult of personality Donald Trump is dismaying to me. Whose fault is it? Whose fault is it, Steve? Oh, uh, you know, I think if you were to go back and and look at this, um, you know, certainly Newt Gingrich is a typhoid Mary of the divisiveness that exists in our politics, the toxicity, you know, just two quick stories. I, I've always loved the story of the friendship between the late great Democratic Senator and Medal of Honor recipient Daniel Inouye and Bob Dole, who spent years together recovering in an army hospital after their World War II wounds. Right. And Inouye taught Dole to play bridge. And one day, Dole asked Inouye, what are you going to do when you get out of here? And in a way, says I had I you know I have no idea. I never thought we were going to get out of here. And and Dole has an elaborate plan. He's going to be run for county attorney. He's going to finish law school. He he's going to get elected to Congress. And when in a way is elected to Congress, he writes Dole a note. He says, "Here I am. Where are you?" <laughs> and of course, when in a way passes his flag draped casket in the rotunda of the Capitol, flanked by army soldiers in dress uniform at attention. An old man is wheeled to those velvet ropes around that casket. And Bob Dole stands up and he salutes with his one good arm, his brother, his friend, his fierce partisan opponent, a man he loved. But before he stands up and does that, he says, Danny would never have wanted me, wanted to see me sitting in this wheelchair. I mean, the, these men were fellow Americans. He, he loved Daniel in a way. He was not Daniel Inouye's enemy. He was his opponent. And we lost that in American politics. And Gingrich is a is an avatar of that. That being said, historically, the Republican Party was the party of the North and the West. You look at the 20th century presidents from California, Nixon and Reagan. The Republican Party that we talk about today is the Southern Republican Party. When Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act, there were exactly three Republicans elected to federal office south of the Mason-Dixon line. This has become the party lock, stock, and barrel, culturally rooted now in this era of Trump in George Wallaceism. It is a Southern evangelical Christian party fueled by resentment, by racial grievance. And one last thing, Preet. 
when you think about Ronald Reagan, that iconic Republican conservative president, Western president, what's on his gravestone? It, it says, I know in my heart that man is good, that what is right will always eventually triumph over what is wrong, and there is worth and purpose in every human life. That was Reaganism. Reaganism is profoundly distinct from the cruel, mean, and vile, corrupt philosophy of Trumpism. So you're no longer a Republican, but are you still a conservative? I've always considered myself a conservative in the, in the sense that I think I have deep respect for our institutions, our history. I think all conservatives have a bit of fatalism in their heart about the human condition. I believe in a strong national defense not military adventurism. I believe in the U.S.-led liberal global order. Uh, I believe in fiscal probity and responsibility. Right, so your, your views haven't changed. I'm just trying to understand why you, why you would leave now. Not substantially. You know, the breaking point for me was the child separation policy. Yeah, why that? Um, which, was a, which was a moment over the line of redemption just extraordinary to see Republican members of Congress cheerleading a policy where any member of the Federal Uniform Service, Border Control, ICE, Customs, someone with an American flag on their arm would rip from a mother's breast a breastfeeding child and separate them in the United States of America. Again, as I said in that announcement, you know, this harkens to the worst chapters in American history, separation of Native American families, separation of African American families on the slave auction blocks, and to see this behavior being repeated, not in the 20th century, but in the second decade, towards the end of the second decade of the 21st century, you know, it's just, it's just too much. So, so fires are raging across the West, and those fires are out of control. But Fires are part of the life cycle of a forest. When a fire destroys a forest, it purifies it. And through that process of purification, the forest can grow anew and thrive. So you want the Republican Party to, to die and then rise again? In order for the party of Lincoln and Eisenhower and Reagan and Grant to endure to be redeemed, to be saved, the party of Trump must be politically annihilated and destroyed. Don't hold back. So as a personal matter, when you made these statements, and you've made strong statements along the way before you renounced your party membership, have you gotten into fights with erstwhile Republican friends? or Are they mad at you? Do you have conversations with them? Do you try to persuade them? As a person who has all these relationships throughout the party over the course of decades in service. What's that like for you? Yeah, I joke around. I was a, I was a huge fan of the TV show, The Americans. Um, I just thought it was beyond brilliant. I think it's along with The Sopranos and The Wire. I think it's one of the three great shows that has ever aired on, on American television. But I, I grew up in the 1980s. I, I was a child of the Reagan era. And when you go through that series and the Jennings, Carrie Russell tells the daughter that, in fact, they're Russian spies. You know, I look back in my own life thinking about that period of time in the 1980s that the show is focused on. And I know for sure if my parents told me that I would have walked across the street to the FBI agent who was our neighbor and turned them in. Right. <laughs> OK, there is there's nothing more important to me than the country. And I have a very strong point of view that, that we are trustees of the greatest inheritance that could ever be bestowed to any person born on this planet, and that is to be an American, not a conservative, not a liberal. I don't care if you're a left-handed democratic socialist from Brooklyn. And so, yes, I've lost friendships. I've had heated arguments. I find that painful. But for me... I'm at peace with what I'm saying for two reasons. One, I deeply believe it. And two, the things that I'm saying, I believe need saying in an hour of crisis where what has become very clear to me as we watch Trump operate in this era is that our institutions and liberal democracy itself 
are much more fragile than we otherwise thought they might be. So you mentioned Newt Gingrich as somebody who is responsible for the state we're in today. You know, he's been around a long time, though, uh, and has not been in office for many, many years. Are there other people that you put blame on for the predicament of the Republican Party becoming this cult of person? I mean, I know Trump has not been on the scene politically for that long, although he has been, he's been on the scene otherwise. Who are, who are the other folks that as you think about the, the history? You know, the, the, strain, the strain of anti-intellectualism and its acceptance was advanced certainly by Sarah Palin, who I have familiarity with. I always look back, not to the moment of her ascension, where frankly, you know, certainly was the case that I didn't know until a couple of days after we picked her that she didn't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> but a period of time after it was clear to everybody that she knew nothing, right? Which was on the occasion of a resignation from the governor's office. But, and, can, I, but can I stop you this, there, Steve? Um, yeah. I mean, you were one of the people who recommended her to be the running mate for John McCain. Didn't What kind of vetting was there to not know that oh, she the was vetting, ignorant? I mean, I've talked about this over the years. The you know when, when I took over the campaign, actually, one of the two responsibilities I wasn't given was the selection and the VP vetting. And so the vetting process was profoundly broken. I've, I've talked about yeah. it. I mean, you know, somebody, you know, who is profoundly unqualified, I think both psychologically, intellectually, and temperamentally was nominated into a position that would have put them one heartbeat away from the presidency. And, and so do you see a straight line from Sarah Palin to Donald Trump, a dotted line, a curvy line, any kind of line? Let, let me say this on that. Going back to the occasion of her resignation from the governor's office, I, I was always struck because I remember watching it, and if this was your sister, your mother, or a friend, you would say, well, we have an intervention here. Is this somebody, this is somebody clearly in psychological distress. The resignation statement was incoherent, and I remember watching it live on TV and saying, well, finally now she's completely exposed. And I remember, like it was yesterday, watching the Fox panel afterwards and commentary, you know, across the conservative media universe when, you know, Generally speaking, people were like, well, it was a great announcement. She'd be a great presidential candidate in 2012. And, you know, this was at this moment in time where we see the rise of Christine O'Donnell. We see the rise of all these wacko bird Republican candidates. And between the 2010-2012 cycle, Democrats take six or seven Republican seats because of all the nutty candidates. And so, what you saw was in this moment in time where the Democrats controlled all the levers of power is that leadership transferred in the Republican Party away from the elected political leaders to the talk radio hosts, that the measure of who was a conservative was who had fidelity to the most outrageous statement made on any given day by the talk radio hosts, you know, chiefly amongst them, mostly Mark Levin and Rush Limbaugh. By the time you get to Rush Limbaugh calling Sandra Fluck a slut in the 2012 election, which the Republican nominee, a man of public virtue and probity and dignity, would not repudiate, you have a situation where, well, the test of conservatism is, I guess, agreeing with Rush Limbaugh that Sandra Fluck is a slut. And so... If you go back to the 2012 race, the mainstream acceptance of birtherism, the failure to condemn it, the mainstreaming of Donald Trump into American political life by the Romney campaign, the multiple occasions where Romney visited with him, courted his political support, all of it. But but is it is it fair just to blame the people who, like Sarah Palin, uh, I mean, she got elected, Trump got elected. People voted for those folks. You know, it's it's an unpopular thing. I, I rarely hear politicians blame voters. But what do, you, what do you think about that? Why do people like that get elected if you think they're so horrendous? Well, I think that, you know, this is, you know, coming to the to my cold, dark, conservative heartbeat, right? You know, when I <laughs> talked about the human We're condition already there. here. You know, as, as Churchill talked about in a democracy, the people get the leaders they deserve. And in this past election, in a, in a race where if you had taken a bunch of us who have been involved at the highest levels of presidential campaigns um, and you blinded us from the poll numbers, we didn't know who the candidate was, just saw the numbers, and you looked at Hillary's numbers and Donald Trump's numbers, 
you would say neither one of these people could ever get elected president of the United States. Now, there's an exception to every rule, and here it is. Yeah. When one unelectable candidate runs against another unelectable candidate, one of the unelectable candidates Has is to going win. to win. Right. And by 78,000 votes, losing the popular vote by 3 million across three states, Donald Trump was very narrowly elected the president of the United States. And so here we are. Now, the collapse of trust in institutions is a real thing. The crisis of trust, faith, and belief, which are the lubricants of the engine of democracy, is a real thing. The defining event of this generation in American life was not the attacks on 9-11. It was the economic collapse in 2008. I think there's a new fault line forming. Mm -hmm. And that, that fault line is a horizontal line. You have a group of people at the top above the line that are living longer and more prosperously than any human beings in, in the history of the world. You have a below that a vestigal middle class that believes three things, that they're one, misfortune from financial calamity, their kids will be worse off, and there's a much greater chance that they'll fall into the bottom 40% or so of the country. 42% of the country doesn't have $400 cash available. There are more payday lenders than Starbucks. There are declining life expectancies for white men, first time in the history of the country. We see rising maternal labor death rates. We see rising infant mortality rates. We see an opioid epidemic disproportionately in this category of Americans that's going to kill five to 750,000 people. We see a revulsion against the self-interested policies of the elite. And so what did people see in 2008? They saw the bankers on Wall Street get a trillion dollars of bailouts, keep their eight-figure bonuses. No one went to jail. 13 million American families got a foreclosure notice. No small number of them with a deputy sheriff on the front lawn telling them they have 45 minutes to get their shit on the curb. 12 million Americans lose their jobs. And so at a time of profound technological transformation, globalization, economic dislocation, there is real anger and there is real self-interest and there is real corruption. And this phenomenon is playing out all over the world. You see it manifested in Britain with Brexit. You see it in the Le Pen movement in France. You see it with the ascendancy of authoritarianish governments in Poland, in Hungary, in Austria. Right. So, the, in so there's Italy. a lot of anger. And so for politicians to be successful, must they, must they mirror and stoke and encourage that anger? Isn't that what Trump did? Yeah, absolutely. You know, fear is the fuel of the Trump mo moment. And you, you can make an argument in these periods in American life that the battle between fear and hope, between love and hate, between progress and regression is not only constant, but the defining constant in America's political life. In the early 1930s, as fascism was rising across Europe. Did FDR stand on the dais at the Capitol and talk about his policy prescriptions as the first order of business? Or did he say to the country, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, right? He understood that in American life, in politics, that fear is a contagion and it causes bad things to happen. What circumstances have to be present? for the message of fear to win out over the message of hope? Is it about the messenger or is it about something else? Well, let's look at what Trump is doing right now, right? There are five specific things, behaviors that I think are deliberate and are not accidental. First thing we're saying is that Donald Trump incites fervor, creates a cult of personality through mass rallies and constant lying. Second thing he does is he scapegoats vulnerable minority populations and assigns blame to them for every complex problem the country and the world is facing. Guatemalan children, for instance. The third thing he does is he alleges conspiracies, that there is an active conspiracy hidden and unseen, the deep state, that is harming. The fourth thing he does, the victims, his base, Right? He creates a sense of mass victimization 
you turn on Fox News, there is no higher virtue in Trumpistan than being a victim. Now, what Trump understood distinct from Sarah Palin, who always cast herself as a victim, is that victims will never pick another victim to lead them. They need a leader to validate their victimization, and that's what Trump does. And then the last thing he does is he asserts the necessity of exercising powers that heretofore no one ever imagined an American president claiming he could exercise for the purposes of protecting the victims against the conspiracy and the scapegoated minority populations and to require in exchange only one thing, the subversion of personal sovereignty, your intellect, and objective truth itself to submit to this idea that truth is what the leader says is true. Truth is what the leader believes is true, no matter what evidence is plainly before your eyes. And that is happening in the country for 40% of the population right now. That's about, Steve, as good and articulate a five-pillar expression of Donald Trump's strategy. If you expanded on it, you could have a nice little pamphlet manifesto. But do you think that Donald Trump and the people around him are that intentional and strategic? Or does he just do these things intuitively and then people like you impose a sort of set of principles and strategies upon the conduct that he's engaging in? No, I, I think it's deli- Listen, Trump found his way to this. He thought a presidential campaign would increase brand value. You know, when it took off and, and he started winning, the ideologists, you know, I don't think Trump necessarily believes any of this stuff. I think it, I think he thinks it works for yeah, him. I don't know that he believes anything at all. Right. That right. He's, he's just a, he's a demagogue who has an instinct for power and is a fetishizer of autocrats. Now, Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller and the ideologists around him, they all believe this stuff. Right. right. And so you have the meeting of the ideologists with a blank slate demagogue, and then you have a cowardly political class of Republicans in Washington who don't believe in any of this stuff, but are too afraid to stand up to it. Why is that? Well, you know, for a couple of reasons, but you know, chiefly amongst them, we have eviscerated the middle in American life. These members of Congress have a finely honed instinct for self-preservation. And the self-preservation overrides institutional preservation. So they look and they say, well, you know, I'm in a plus 30% Trump district. My only vulnerability is in a primary. So I'm not going to do anything to offend these people. Now, the institutional preservation would lead you to say the party won't survive this. When you just simply look at the economic trends, the size of the millennial generation, the increasing share of participation of women in the electorate. But the institutional preservation is secondary to the individual preservation. And so in a country- But that's sort of always been true. Hasn't it always been true that sort of every man for himself in Congress or in the state legislature? Well, think about it this way. You know, a couple of years ago, you have Joe Wilson- member of South Carolina, reportedly drunk on the floor of the House, who shouts at the first African-American president delivering his State of the Union. He, he shouts, you lie. Now, not too many years before he did that, if he had, he would have been taken out of that place by his year, and he would have been called on to resign by leaders of both parties, and he would have been out of the Congress. Right. What happened to Joe Wilson? He became a mini-celebrity. <laughs> he becomes a celebrity, and he raises millions of dollars overnight. So if you're some poor congressional schlub crossing the street from your house office building to the congressional campaign committee building to raise money for 10 hours in a day, $500 at a time, what does Joe Wilson's behavior teach you, right? And I do believe in markets as a conservative, right? So if you incentivize and reward crazy behavior, you get more of it. If you punish it, you get less of it. We have a system that incentivizes and rewards the craziest people, right, in American life and politics in a system now where the voters no longer pick politicians, but rather the politicians through the sophistication of the gerrymandering and redistricting process pick 
their voters. So what's the future for people in the middle, for moderates? You know, they're boring. They don't impose their views of fear or hope. They just sort of work hard. And they're neither overly conservative nor overly liberal. Sometimes they vote for Democrats like Obama. Sometimes they vote for Republicans like Reagan. Is there room in the future in America for people who are sort of moderate? Well, we live in a country where, except for our politics, we have a choice of 500 TV channels, 50 types of peanut butter in the supermarket, right? I don't think American politics is immune to this. And so my point of view would be that Donald Trump's contact and ascension to the executive office of president will profoundly disrupt for a long time American politics. You may well see a third party. You may see independent movements. You know, we'll see we'll see what happens. But um before very long, there's gonna be a snapback to it. Yeah. Can we talk about John McCain, who you work sure. for on on multiple campaigns? Let me suggest something radical. Is there an argument uh, in your mind that John McCain should caucus with the Democrats in the Senate to be something of a check on Donald Trump and all these terrible things you think he's doing to the country? I think every everybody's familiar with Senator McCain's fight, medical fight, right yeah. now. And I think that he has left the country a great gift that will endure for many years in his uh, final book, where he talks about the importance of the United States, uh, the importance of democracy. But but I think for John McCain, it's not John McCain's burden any longer. It's another younger generation of Republican leaders. It is men like Corker. It is men like Flake. It is Republicans who are leaving their public service. And have we seen enough evidence to suggest that, well, is the answer Chuck Schumer's majority leader? I would argue no, but put the majority leader title into the hands of somebody who will exercise appropriate oversight over what I think is an increasingly reckless, dangerous, and lawless administration. So what do you think about people like Flake and, and Corker who are leaving? Should they stay and fight? I think it's a personal decision. You know, when to end a career in public service, you know, the, the, the founders never intended that people would be career politicians. You know, what I would like to see is a class of political leaders in the country that are willing to lay down political careers um, if they must, you know, to defend the idea of the constitutional republic, to defend Americanism. I mean, one of the reasons the United States became the most powerful economic and military power uh, in the 20th century was because we were the first country to have mandatory public education. And the idea of that was not uncontroversial when it was proposed in the 19th century. But when the proponents of it made an argument why we needed it, it wasn't because we wanted to produce bankers and engineers. The purpose of a public education system at the time was argued we needed it to produce good citizens. I think we have a civics education crisis in this country. I think the Trump presidency is a manifestation of it to some degree. There needs to be more and louder and consistent voices other than John McCain, right, who speak to the importance of the American experiment. And I think that the people in there, as a general proposition, have been ranging from lacking to timid to outright complicit in trying to subvert an investigation into the real, factual, it happened meddling of a hostile foreign power, Russia, into our sovereignty and election process. And that's the Jim Jordans, the Matt Gates, the Mark Meadows, the Devin Nunez's, who are really fundamentally advancing through their congressional offices the strategic interests of the Russian Federation. It's would an extraordinary like those, moment. Would you like to see each of those men defeated? Absolutely. I mean, they're, they're unfit. They're unfit to serve in the Congress. And, and, in, my, and in my view, they are, they are not faithful uh, to their oaths of office in a, in a profound way. Do you, do you talk to John McCain from time to time? I talked to him uh, some months ago and had a good conversation. And, you know, he is a, uh, he's an extraordinary American. You know, you know, as he says in his book, you know, a, a fight not joined is a fight not enjoyed. He's in a hell of a personal fight right now. And, 
when you consider his life, you know, he's, he's somebody who put the uniform on at Annapolis when he was 17 years old. And with the exception of the time he spent as a candidate between his retirement from the Navy and his swearing into the Congress, except for a couple months, he spent every hour of his adult life in service to the United States of America. And there'll, there'll never be another guy like him, a big life, an impactful life. What do you think he hopes his legacy will be? He speaks to it in his book that he fought the good fight, you know, that he played a role, that he made a difference. And I was in Vietnam in April, and he's revered in Vietnam. And one of the most extraordinary aspects of McCain's career, and I don't think a lot of people know about know this about him, but one of his duties when he was in prison, he was the chaplain. But one of the things that John McCain has done throughout his life is this is this notion of forgiveness, of, of redemption. And along with John Kerry, a man who three Purple Hearts, Silver Star, combat veteran of the Vietnam War, Pete Peterson, another POW, these three men, the two senators and the congressmen, were instrumental in the reestablishment of diplomatic relations between Vietnam and the United States. Yes. And this is the first generation of Vietnamese, right, that, that are born after 1985 in a thousand years. They're living in both independence and peace, and they're focused on the future. And that you can go to Vietnam and you can see the friendship that can grow between the United States and Vietnam. When you consider that there are U.S. naval warships, including the USS John McCain, who have made port visits to Vietnam, the forgiveness, the redemption, the reconciliation is an important chapter of McCain's story. He, he is a warrior, yes, but also a peacemaker. I think that's all fair. Can I ask you, you know, you speak very passionately and articulately about not just politics, but policy and values. Uh, and you've always said you're the guy behind the scenes. You care deeply about politics. You've spent all-nighters many, many times in your life advocating for other candidates. How come not you? <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. You know, I, I've never thought about it, to be honest with you. You know, I, I've spent my career inside the campaigns. You know, I had an opportunity to, you know, work in a White House and had some interesting experiences there. But, you know, I, I have young kids. I'm 47. You know, hopefully you got a couple more miles around the track. You know, you never say never. You, you never know what's going to happen in life. But, you know, in the 1930s, you know, fascism rose not because it was strong, but because democracy was weak. And I've spent my political career, really my first paid job in politics from age 22 in 1992, finishing college through now in this next election, you know, I'll be turning 50 years old. And so I, I've watched the degeneracy like a frog in the pot of boiling water. And anybody who's played at the highest level of American politics, like I have, none of us have clean hands in this, but, you know, have watched our politics coarsen hour by hour, year by year, until we arrive at a point where you ask people, as a Harvard professor did in a study who were born in the 1930s, you know, how essential is it to live in a democracy? And, you know, the answer is like 85%. And then you ask the people born in the 1980s, and the answer is 25%. <laughs> and, yeah. You, this is this is worrying. It's it's concerning. And, you know, watching what's unfolded in the last eight, 18 months, from my perspective, you know, I'm not okay with it. It's a new experience for me to be talking about some of the things I've been talking about and to hopefully trying to frame some of them into a historical context, you know, to communicate to people. It's everybody believes in the moment that they live in that it's either, you know, the best of times or it's the worst of times. And it's, it's neither. The country's resilient. It's faced existential crises greater than Donald Trump. But no one should mistake that Donald Trump isn't a crisis. It is. And what we have in this country and what's been bequeathed to us isn't necessarily self-enduring. And I think we see that in spades. Steve Schmidt, we're sadly out of time. I'd love to have you back. Thank you for speaking with principle. And with frankness, on TV all the time, I watch you and today on the show. 
Thanks, Preet. Great to be with you. So now let's talk about something in the news that struck me. We're taping this around 11 a.m. on Wednesday, August 8th. And on my way over to the studio, news broke that a sitting congressman from the 27th District in New York, Christopher Collins, had been arrested and charged with insider trading offenses. And the office that brought the charges was none other than the Southern District of New York, where I used to work, as you know. And we used to bring a lot of insider trading cases. Uh, Chris Collins has served some terms in the 27th District, and he is, according to his website, a member of the, ironically, Law Enforcement Caucus. The case charges Christopher Collins and his son, Cameron Collins, and another individual with a particular insider trading scheme. And the the case basically, from what I can see in the indictment, and that's all I know about it, is that Chris Collins was a shareholder in and a member of the board of a biotech company named Innate Immunotherapeutics Limited. Its potential future claim to fame was it was developing a treatment for a form of multiple sclerosis. And as happens with biotech companies and pharmaceutical companies, they rise and fall and their financial worth rises and falls based on whether or not they have a good treatment for a particular disease. And so it appears that Chris Collins was an investor and a member of the board, owned substantial stock, as did his son, Cameron Collins. So on around June 22nd of 2017, the biotech company got bad news. And the bad news was that its drug that they thought was promising for the treatment of multiple sclerosis or a form of it, MIS-416, had failed its drug trial. And as you might imagine, the bad news had a huge effect on the price of the stock of the company. In fact, after they made the news public of the failure of the drug trial, the price of the stock dropped 92%. And what the indictment lays out, the folks in my old office allege, is that Chris Collins, along with some others, passed along this inside information about the failed drug trial before it became public, before other people could uh, decide to sell. And he passed that information on to his son, understanding that he would trade on it. And other people were contacted as well, and there were other tippies, as they're known. And overall, as the indictment alleges, because Chris Collins passed along inside information that he had no right to pass along as an insider at the company, losses were avoided to the tune of $768,000. Now, the reason I mention it is uh, not just out of pride for the work of my old office, and I congratulate them on bringing this case, and Chris Collins and the other defendants are innocent until proven guilty. That's our system. But it looks pretty strong as I read the indictment. And the calls back and forth between Chris Collins and his son look devastating. And they clearly have some information from witnesses about what was said from the father to the son. So I congratulate them on their excellent good work and continuing to drain the swamp. But there's a little bit of a backstory here too. When I was the U.S. attorney, there was a case called Newman in the Second Circuit that overturned uh, the convictions of some people on what I thought, and most legal experts thought, was a misguided ground. They injected a new requirement in order to convict someone of insider trading. And that is that there had to be a benefit, a concrete financial pecuniary benefit to the person who was providing the tip. So that if you were just providing a tip or free information to a friend or a spouse or a family member, according to this, I think, bad decision called Newman, you couldn't prosecute that person for insider trading. And most of the time when that kind of gift is made, there's not an expectation of cash money coming back to you. And so there was a long fight within the Justice Department and in another case called Solomon. And based on a lot of the work that my office did and the arguments that they made, the Supreme Court, not that long ago, overruled this legal principle in the Newman case, eight to zero. And had that not happened, from what I can see looking at this indictment, the prosecution of Chris Collins would not have been possible. So I'm gratified both that my office is continuing to do great work. I'm very proud of them. But I'm gratified, second, that the work we all did together before was vindicated and a bad rule that would have, I think, allowed for a lot of corrupt conduct to go unpunished was reversed. And the fruits of that reversal we're seeing in this case today. And, you know, and by the way, there's going to be a lot of commentary And that is that Chris Collins is a Republican 
and that Chris Collins was one of the first, if not the first member of the House to endorse President Trump. That doesn't matter. I don't care about that. My old office doesn't care about that. In my time as U.S. attorney, and I am positive this tradition continues, nobody cared if you were a Republican or a Democrat. We investigated both. We prosecuted more Democrats than Republicans. What matters here is the rule of law. And was there a violation that can be proven? And it seems like they found one. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Steve Schmidt. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Kat Aaron, Chris Berube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Vinay Basti, Jeff Eisenman, and Jake McAbee. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.